Anybody ready to get more unshakable? Let me ask it the way it opposed, that, that I think I need it. Anybody need to be more unshakable? I'm going to raise my hand. Amen? This morning, last week, we, last week we established that there are just simply times in life that our world shakes. Whether it's a pandemic or it's a world event or not, life deals to each of us moments when our world shakes. Say Amen. The death of a loved one, the loss of a job, a serious health crisis, the ending of a relationship, a door to a dream gets closed. All of that shakes us. Say amen if you recognize that. And yet, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 says, since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshiping him with holy fear and awe. My question is, for us today as we bring this little two-part series to a close, is how? I mean, I love the theological truth, and I believe that the Word of God says we are inheriting an unshakable kingdom. But what's that going to mean to me and you tomorrow morning? Amen? What's it going to mean with all the reports that say a vaccine's not going to be available until at least the first of the year? What does that mean? How do I live in this reality I'm not trying to bring fear, but what if we do enter a period of time where there is a resurgence of cases and the state of Illinois shuts us down again? What if, what if, what if, what if, even though, when that, come on, that's the world. It is, can we just say, a little shaky right now. We don't, we don't know exactly what's coming. So how, in the face of all of that, can we be all that God's called us to be as a light and a salt in this world to testify of the goodness of God. The question today is how and can we? And I want to answer the second question right now. Yes, we can. Absolutely on the authority of God's word, the Lord wouldn't call us to be or do something that we couldn't do. We can inherit this kingdom and be unshakable in an aspect of our life. Say amen if you believe that. So the question is how? I got no idea. <laughs> no, I really do have an idea. I want to show you something from the section of Scripture that we've been looking at. I'm, I'm excited about this. I, I'm, I'm just, let's do something first. Would you pray with me? Lord, let me say this the way you've shown it to me. Help me to communicate this, Holy Spirit, in a way that will captivate people's hearts the way that it has captivated mine. I want there to be, Lord, a transference of faith and belief and encouragement and even excitement, Father, in the body of Christ. Not because of the stylistic delivery of it. That's nothing, Lord. That won't last until dinner. I want you to plant something, Holy Spirit, down in people's hearts. I believe it's your desire. It's not just because I want it. I believe you've placed it in me because you want to put something in us that is unshakable. And Lord, that's, that, that's a big thing. And Lord, I have, I, I don't have it. It's not in me, it'll be in you. So do what you want to do today, Holy Spirit. Do it powerfully in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. amen. Let me tell you about something that I read this week. I'm excited about it because of its implications upon life in times like this. I want to talk to you about something that neurobiologists, I didn't even know there were such things as neurobiologists, but there are, and they have 
in the last few years, developed a term for a part of the brain. This isn't theology. This isn't, this isn't psychology as much as this is physiology. The physical aspect of your brain and how it works. And they have labeled a part of the brain the joy center of the brain. I want you to know that over the last few months, mine has been about the size of the pin, you know, a head on a pin. Anybody felt like your joy center shrunk a little bit over the last few months? Well, we're going to fix that today. Amen? Here's what's cool about that. Uh, a neurobiologist by the name of Dr. James Fryson and his team of colleagues have, have stated this. They knew this, but they didn't understand. They knew that there was a part of the brain, unlike the rest of the part of the brain, that keeps developing your whole life. Neurobiologists say that while most brain development stops somewhere in childhood, the brain's joy center continues developing your whole life. Some of you look at your neighbor and say, you should be happier by now. <laughs> look at somebody that's got a few years on them and say, I would have thought your joy center would be a little bigger. <laughs> Amen? You got it? See, that tells me that you're not supposed to be an ochromudgeon as you get older, that there really is the capacity to get more and more joyous with every passing year. Amen? Watch this. That the joy center continues developing. It is observable in the right orbital prefrontal cortex. I knew that, but I wrote it down just so that I would. Yeah. The right orbital prefrontal cortex is the only portion of the brain that never loses its capacity to grow. Dr. James Friesen and his colleagues explain, when the joy center of the brain has been sufficiently developed, look at your neighbor and go, I'm not sure you have sufficiently developed the joy center of your brain. For real, this is science here. When the joy center has been sufficiently developed, it regulates... The emotions, the pain control, and the immunity systems of the body. Isn't that good? You can joy yourself into better health. We sort of knew that, but now the science is beginning to tell us. Watch this. The scripture says, and laughter does the heart, the seat of the emotions, good like a... Science is finally catching up with what the word of God told us a long time ago. Amen? But listen... It controls the emotions. It can regulate. Let me say this. It regulates the emotions, the pain control, and the immunity system. I love, oh, I listen to this next, this next statement. It guides us to act like ourselves. Any of you ever had a period of time when you were so stressed you didn't act like yourself? Any of you ever lived with somebody that when they were hurting physically, a different personality came out and it wasn't really a good one? Any of you ever recognize that? You're hurting and you're a little more snappy. You're a little less patient. You're a little less fun to be around. Not much joy physically that's going on in your life. But this part of our brain can, it says, cause us to act like our true selves. It releases neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin, and is the, oh, I love this part. It's the only part of the brain that overrides, has the capacity to override the main drive centers of food, sexual impulses, terror, and rage. Without sufficient, I love this term, joy strength, 
This is what the scientists wrote. Without sufficient joy strength, we spend the rest of our lives trying to fill the void. What's that void shaped like? Shaped like God. I think what we finally found is that the joy of the Lord really is our strength. It can give you a strength that nothing else can do. Without sufficient joy strength, we spend the rest of our lives trying to fill the void. And then he says this, Sabbath, this is now a, a biblical writer writing about this. Sabbath, delight, celebration in following the way. This is not Dr. James Friesen. This is a guy named Jonathan Grant. Sabbath, delight, celebration in following the way of Jesus. Give us sufficient joy to resist the temptations of this world. Isn't that good? But here's my question. Where do we get enough joy to be who God has really created us to be? To overwhelm, listen, those four pieces. This is the science that the joy center can override the main drive centers of food, which is our survival instincts, our sexual impulses, which is our desire to to be loved, to be cared for, to be physically satiated, terror, which has to do with our fear, and rage, which has to do with our anger that the joy center of you has the capacity to overwhelm those innate parts of who we are. So how do we get sufficient joy? How do we develop that part so that it can override, for instance, the fear part of who we are, the terror, the rage? Any of you, any of you feel yourself getting angry? You turn on, <laughs> you turn on social media and ah, ha, ha, ha. Anybody? You flip on the news and you just are so, you just find anger coming into you. You don't know what's going on in our world. You don't know what's taking place in your world. How do you overwhelm that? Where do we get enough joy to maintain a foundation that is unshakable? I want you to notice from the section of scripture that we read last week, and here's the part that I don't think I have any way of really getting you to see, but the Lord is making it more and more real to me as I dwell upon it. In Hebrews chapter 12, if you remember, for those of you that were here last week or have watched it online, those of you that are in our online community, you remember in this section of scripture in Hebrews chapter 12, in the first few verses of it, it talks about the children of Israel coming up to the mountain of God when the Ten Commandments were given. And there's a picture there of the ground shaking and the, and the sound of it and the, and the light and the, and the earth quaking. And it was so, so, just so spectacular in, its, in the awe of it that the people shouted out to Moses, make the Lord stop talking to us. We don't want the Lord to speak to us anymore. You go up and talk to the Lord and then you come back and tell us what he said because his voice and his presence and who he is is too filled with terror and awe. We don't want to be in his presence. And there was a very right reaction. That was a very right reaction to who God was to humanity at that point in time. You couldn't come into his presence. At one point in time, Moses asked to see God and the Lord says, Moses, if you look on the front of me, you will die. You cannot see me and live. Do you remember this story? So the Lord says, look, there's this, there's this hollow in the rock. You stand there. I'll cover you with my hand and I'll pass by and you can look on the back part of me. You can survive that. But if you see the front of me, Moses, you can't even live. 
Moses comes down off the mountain after that, and he is glowing with visible light from just seeing the Lord from the back. He is a terrifying force. And that's what we see in the first part of Hebrews chapter 12. But listen now, come on. Oh, Lord, let let us see this for what it is. That's not what you and I experience. That's change. Something about who the Lord is to us. Something about what we've become. Something about the status of our situation changes. And we know what the something is. We'll get to that in a moment. But in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, thinking about that mountain, the writer of the Hebrews says, listen, you've not come to that mountain. There is a mountain here. He says, no, you have come, get this, to Mount Zion. It's a different deal. To the city of the living God. You haven't come to the mountain where it's trembling. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. Listen, now get this picture. To countless thousands of angels in a joyful gathering. Angels are celebrating. They're worshiping. Woo! They're, they're jumping. They're high, I don't know that they're high-fiving, but that's the way I see my angels, all right? It's the celebration, and it's what they're celebrating. You have come, listen, verse 23. You and I have now come to the assembly of God's firstborn children. You have now inherited the rights of a firstborn son or daughter. You get to walk right into his presence now. You get to come right in. You have the assembly of God's firstborn children whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God himself. You get to walk right into his presence now. You don't have to be afraid. Nothing's trembling. He's like running off the porch like the prodigal son to get to where you are now. Oh, that's what's happening to you and I. You have come to God himself, who's the judge over all things. You say, I don't think I'm good enough. When that voice says to you, you're not good enough, you need to go. I get to stand in the presence of a father, and you're not the judge, devil. You're not my judge, heart. He's the judge of all things, and he is crazy about me. No, that is just not good enough, people. You got to get this. You wake up in the middle of the night thinking you're not going to make it. You need to say to that voice, hey, I get to walk right into the throne room of God, creator of heaven and earth. My name is written on his palm. I'm trying. I'm doing my best up here, Carol. She said, I wish you'd get excited. If I get any more excited, I'm going to stroke out right here. Boom. That's all right. I'm going to heaven. <laughs> Bury me in these shoes, John. I like these shoes. All right. All right. You have come to the spirit of the righteous ones, spirits of the righteous ones in heaven who have now been made perfect. You have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people and to the sprinkled blood which speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance. Jesus' blood could cause you to be lost. Listen to me. Jesus didn't die to give a perfect example. The law, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this. The scripture says that without the law, we wouldn't know what sin is. When you hold up the law to humanity, it only identifies their sin, and you are lost because of it. And the blood of Jesus, a perfect example, could be used to verify that a human could live on this earth without sin. But that's not what this blood does. 
This blood appropriates for you and I a righteousness that can only be appropriated by a perfect sacrifice, which you could never be. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You don't come to God before him in terror and in awe. You come, you become, you come before a procession of angelic beings celebrating, celebrating what? That salvation has come to the world, that the blood of Jesus has been shed, and that you and I can now come before him rejoicing because our name's are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, what does that do? When you begin to let it get into you, it's going to fire up your joy center. It's going to give you a sustainable thing that the world can't touch, that sickness can't touch, that no, no, no diagnosis from a physician can touch, that nothing from this life can remove you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, neither life nor death nor things present nor things to come nor sickness nor anything. In all of creation can separate you from the love of God that causes your name to be written in that book. And you have now come to that kingdom. And that kingdom cannot be shaken. Amen. And if you let it, that thing can start overwhelming other stuff in you. It'll start overwhelming the fear and the worry and the anxiety. But you've got to see him for who he is. You've got to reflect on what he's done for you. You've got to do what Jesus called us to do every time we do communion. And every day, you've got to remember who you are now. You say, I don't feel that way. What has that got to do with anything? This is about what the Word of God says, not about how you feel, not about what other voices tell you, not about what other people say, not about the programs around you or this world. It doesn't even, listen, doesn't matter what the, what the church is doing so much. This is who Jesus says you are. Hmm. How? How can you do it? How can you live it, though? How can you maintain it? I'm so glad you asked. Let me tell you, Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Anybody out there? Anybody with me? Ephesians 6. You've read this before. I've read it, I don't know, dozens and dozens and dozens of times. Maybe hundreds. Listen to this context. I just want to read verses 10 through 18 and then comment on them. Paul says this, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Some of you have been wrestling against flesh and blood. you got to stop. You're going to kill yourself. And you're going to kill others. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Everything that was written up in that first section that we covered in Hebrews, everything that was done for you was done without your doing much of anything other than expressing faith in what Jesus had done. You don't earn your way to heaven. We don't believe in a works-based salvation. Say amen. amen. You accept the free gift of God and God's grace 
appropriated by what Jesus did on the cross becomes you, and you enter into that group that is now written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and you get to be a part of that celebratory party that the angels are engaged in. However, that was a long sentence, comma. I want to talk to you about active participation in an unshakable kingdom very quickly. Because there is a salvation that only comes through accepting the free gift of Jesus. You don't earn your salvation. But if you're going to live above the fear of this world, there's some things that you and I must do. Are you with me? You cannot just live carelessly and rise above this world. You can be saved, but you cannot secure your mind and your emotions and your relationships and your money and your marriage and your home and your kids. You cannot do that without some active participation. Let me tell you in what, and it's in Ephesians 6. When we look at this in the context of the day that we live in, there's some really powerful things, and let me touch on them very quickly. Before I do that, let me just get you to notice real quickly in verses 10 through 18, the number of times that we are told to stand, get up, hold firm, something. He says it this way five times. I need you to stand. I need you to put on the armor. I need you to withstand in the evil day. I need you to stand firm. And then finally, he says, stand therefore. How many of you think the idea of putting on this armor is to be able to just stand? Come on, amen? Don't give up any more ground. Don't concede any more territory. Draw a line in the sand. Get your armor on. Go to battle. Develop a mindset that says, this is mine, devil, flesh, world, circumstances, worry, anxiety, money. This is the Lord's territory and you can't have it. Amen? How? How do you do it? How do I do it? And if you think for a minute that I just get up every day and this just comes natural and I'm just living victorious every minute, you have no I fooled you big time. Let me just be transparent for a moment. I don't know that I've ever had a ministry season more disconcerting for me personally than this one. I have not worried more than I have in the last year, ever. And the pandemic didn't help it any. You say, Pastor, what are you worried about? First of all, the fact that you showed up here today makes me feel better. I, I appreciate that. So show up again next week because I could collapse in a heaping pile of weeping mess. No, listen. I want you to come, but that's not really the reason. But pastors all over the nation are, are worrying about whether or not... Yes, Lord. Right? Whether or not their people are coming back. Whether or not... Because listen, people develop a... You know, we, we, we were out for four months. Four months. It takes 21 days to make a habit. All right? Are people going to... And I don't know if you... I don't know if you're worried about that. <laughs> But I am, like, worried about it. Amen? And I don't know if you, if that's, cons oh, yes. And, like, <laughs> my wife will say, they're coming back. She just says it so, and I'm like, how do you know? I just know. I just know. Now, don't, don't give me an amen, all right? Yeah. I don't want an amen. I want, you to, I want you to get out here and grovel and worry with me for a while, all right? Oh, stop it. Just go to sleep. 
I think what she's really saying is, you're keeping me up. Would you just stop it? All right? If, you, if your world, I don't want you to think that I'm standing up here preaching this untouched by it. Not just the church. My, what, 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 what kind of world are my grandkids going to, you with me? What, what are my kids are going to endure? What am I, really my grandkids, the kids, eh, big deal. But the grandkids, come on. You know what I mean? What, what, what kind of world are my kids going to be in? What, what's the school you're going to do to my Come on, amen. You get it? Anybody else worried about those? I mean, I don't want to homeschool them. <laughs> amen. Anybody, anybody's world shaking? Yeah. No, listen, we, I make fun of that, but it's very real. What about the economic outcome in some of your worlds? So how do we, how do, we do it? How do we actively participate in the unshakable kingdom? How do we secure a faith that doesn't move. Here it is. Ephesians 6 says this. It's never been more true than today. First of all, Paul says this. Put on the belt of truth. I don't know if you've noticed, but there are a couple of unreliable sources of information in our world today. Amen? Anybody feel the futility of not knowing the truth? Anybody? Not really knowing what, what is true and what's not. It's like every, every opinion, everything on the internet. And I, I have been just completely amazed at how many people on Facebook now have a doctorate in, in, in uh, infectious disease. Uh, what's up? Uh, you know what I'm talking about, all right? Everybody's an expert. Everybody knows, they absolutely know masks are good. No, they're not, they're evil. And everybody is absolutely right in their own mind. And, and so where? About, about, about who's to blame? This is, all, this is all the Republicans. No, 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 it's the Democrats. No, 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 it's the Chinese. No, no, no. I've got a relative that really believes that when they swab you to test you, they're not actually testing you, they're giving you the virus. I wanted to tell her. She may see this. I'll be in trouble, all right? I wanted to tell her I was sick before they put that thing in my nose. So how do you know? How do you know? You need an absolute source of unmoving, unchanging, verified forever, built on a foundation that's not changing, something that you can refer to that will tell you the truth. What is that? If we only had a source, if we only had some sort of book we could read, if we only had something that would tell us who we really are and straighten us out on what we should do, and come on, we do have a source of truth, don't we? You have never needed God's word more. This is not, now listen to me. This isn't preacher ease. This isn't church rhetoric. This is prescriptive. If you want your mind to be at peace, you need systematically to take in God's word. I don't know how to say it. I'm saying it without any, woo, all right? You've got to get in God's word. You've got to get a source of truth that will inform your emotions and your reactions and your life right now. And the only thing I know of is God's word. Amen as a source of truth. Secondly, he said, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now listen, we're talking about active participation in the kingdom of God. 
I don't think that you are saved because of this breastplate of righteousness. This is an armor that comes. Yes, it, it is a part. Uh, the righteousness of Christ is applied to our life. But this is also something talking about that we put on. You cannot right now. I don't think it's good ever. But the, some of the stuff that old-time Pentecostal preachers have been preaching to us has never had more applicability than it does right now. You cannot fill your mind right now with all of the junk of the world and be solid in an unshakable foundation. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to preach rules. And, 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 and Listen, I'm just telling you that if you want to have peace in a troubled time, you need to guard. What is a breastplate protect your heart in the scriptures when it speaks of the heart it's not talking about the pump it's talking about the seat of your emotions the seat of how you respond the seat of how you see and respond to the things of this world and if you want to protect that then feed into your spirit whatsoever things are pure whatsoever things are true whatsoever things of good report feed your heart and your spirit on those things and put on the breastplate of righteousness actively participate in securing your faith right now Second, thirdly, he says, shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Peace with God, peace in your heart, peace in your thoughts. What does it have to do? Here's the best way I can think about that in relation to our world. I don't go anywhere physically, but that these guys take me there. Where are you going? What are you participating in right now? I'm not asking you if you're participating in active sin. If you are, you ought to stop. You you got a problem with the Lord if you just are actively living a lifestyle of sin. I'm not asking you if you trip and fall. I trip and fall. That's not what I'm talking about. But if you're planning, if you're making plans to walk into sin, you're not going to have any peace in your spirit. The foundation upon which you are built is going to be shaking. The confidence that comes, not from building your way into a salvation that you get to go to heaven on. No, this is after that. This is talking about knowing the confidence that comes from disciplining yourself. And it's tough. It's hard. But I'm not, I'm, Lord, don't let my feet take me somewhere I shouldn't be. Say amen. I love this next one. The shield of faith. I like that faith is a shield. Do you know what you do with a shield in a time of battle? You don't, do you put it on your back? I know that's where Captain America carries his, but listen. But you know what he does eventually? He takes it off and he holds it up here. What does a shield do? You, you, you can hide behind it. Anybody ever get to a place where you're weary and you're a little tired and right now you you can't really draw your sword? You may not be able to advance. You may be able to do like a phalanx thing and, and get a bunch of people and stand behind. But listen, a shield is great for that moment when you're tired and you're weary and you can't get the sword out right now and you can't advance. I can get behind my faith and just, just breathe. Catch my breath. I don't have any answers. I don't know what's coming. I can't see anything. The news has got no, I don't know. Nobody's reporting. I'm not getting any of the things that normally build. All of this could be what the enemy's telling you. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know where to go. I don't know how to do this. I don't know. And listen, there comes a moment in time where you just need to be able to go. I can't see. I don't know. But I believe. Amen. You get behind that that shield of faith. And you just... You can just hang on. 
while the storm is raging around you. I was listening to a Louis Giglio sermon yesterday. Someday I'm going to grow up and be that guy. That guy can do it, man. A friend of mine sent it to me. He's preaching from the 23rd Psalm. He's, it must be a part of a sermon series, and it must be a part of a sermon series called Even Though. And he's looking at sections of Scripture where the Scripture says, Even Though. And he comes to the 23rd Psalm. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. How many of you would have written it differently? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell house of the Lord. What? Come on. If I were writing that psalm, I wouldn't have written it like that. Thou preparest the table before me in your presence. The end. Got it? And Lord, because of you, I don't go through the valley of the shadow of death. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me beside the still waters. I like, uh, oh, yeah, I like all that. That's good stuff. I don't walk through the valley of the shadow of death because I have your rod and your staff to comfort me. I would have written it like that, wouldn't you? What's the Lord saying in that? What is the shield of faith for? Because you will. Some of you are, you have walked through the valley of death. I know people make, oh, it's just a shadow. You're not really dealing with death. But we do deal with death sometimes, amen? Death of a loved one, death of a dream, death of a job, death of our health, death of relationships. And even though I walk through the valley of death, Scripture says the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. It's that table thing. It's the table. You prepare a table before me, Lord. Can we just say it out of the King James? For me in the presence of my enemies. Why there? Why, why make a meal? Why, why, why lavish upon me in an arid place the joys of cool water and food and the hospitality, which is the absolute greatest statement of hospitality in that world. Why, why make the table here, Lord? And the Lord says, because I want to be able to sit down on the other side of it and be so centered in your life that no matter what your enemies are doing, your eyes are fixed on me. And I'm sufficient, even in the valley of death. Because let me tell you, now that's a testimony of relationship with the Lord, isn't it? That's what he's after. I want to go right into the enemy's camp. And not because you're strong enough, but because you're with me, John. 
We're going to sit down and we'll have lunch right in the midst of that swarming mass of evil and people trying to take you down, thoughts trying to eat you up. Oh, I'm going to come in and sit down right in the midst of that and we'll just have dinner. We'll smack our food because it irritates them. All right? Yeah. All right? You see that reservation? Jesus paid for that reservation. That's the joyous celebration. He paid that you can sit. He didn't pay so that you could walk through life never having any difficulty. He paid so that in the midst of the difficulty, you could know joy. In the midst of the storm, He paid so that your enemy would be overwhelmed. He came so that when the enemy who comes to steal, kill, and destroy tries to take you out, you end up having life abundantly in the midst of the valley of death. Come on. That's what the shield of faith is for. But you got to actively participate in the establishment of that kingdom. You can't be undermining your faith. You can't be feasting on the world. You can't allow the devil to sit at your table. That's what Louis Giggly's message. That wasn't mine. That was his. But it was good. Don't let the devil sit at your table. We get in the valley, and that's the voice we listen to. That voice that tells you you're not enough. You won't make it. Everybody's against you. Plant's going to close. You're going to run out of money. Your kids are going to not be able to afford clothes. You're not going to have food. You're going to get this virus and die. You need to be able to say, hey, that seat is not reserved for you. You're sitting in my Lord's seat. Get up. This is a table for two. And you aren't invited. I thought of this, yeah. Some of you need to get one of those little reserve signs and put in a seat across from you. And when the enemy tries to step in and sit down at your table, you need to go, excuse me, I, I, think, you, I think you've sat in the wrong seat. That's not your seat. That's his seat. My eyes are fixed on the author and the finisher of my faith. I'm hiding behind the shield of faith. There is joy unspeakable and full of glory in his presence. At his right hand is where I live. A thousand might fall on that side of my table and 10,000 might fall on that side. But because my eyes are fixed on the author and the finisher of my faith, that destruction cannot come near unto me. Amen. Hmm. I got my shield of faith. Don't be throwing away your shield. Don't throw it away. Real quickly. Put on the helmet of salvation. I think I would have started with that. But Paul didn't. Put on the helmet of salvation. I just had one thought. You know, how many of you appreciate your salvation? Come on, really? Secures your mind? Should. The helmet should protect your mind, your thoughts, your head. You ought to be thinking about the fact that you're like saved. You're part of the kingdom of God. You're going to stand. You've got to get that straight. It's who I am. 
And, and I love that, and it's important. But I want you to imagine with me a soldier who gets up, and all, and when I say all, I mean all, that he puts on in his helmet, is his helmet. And he runs out onto the battlefield. And that's all he has on. And you're on the other side. And you see this naked guy with a helmet running across the battlefield. And there's all these other soldiers. Who do you shoot first? <laughs> Amen? I don't know who that guy is. <laughs> but he needs to die. <laughs> all right? I'm, I want you to know that it's good that you're saved. And someday this life will close out and you will enter into the rest of your father. I believe that. But between this moment and that moment, there may be some stuff that you have to go through. And you may need more than just the knowledge that you're saved. You need all this armor. This last one. And take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We've already talked about the importance of the word, but we may not have thought about it in this context. And take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. You've heard it preached before, only offensive weapon, only one listed here, everything else is defensive. The only thing there that's offensive is the sword. I just want you to make sure you understand who's wielding it. See it? Gina, and you take up the word and you lash them to pieces with it. No, that's not what it says. You take up the word and you, I mean, you, you, you just, you, I'm going on here. i tell you what, I'm going to straighten you out with the word of God. No. It's not, it is a weapon. But it's supposed to be wielded through you by the spirit of God. It's his spirit that guides the application of it. When he does it, it accomplishes that which the Father intends, which is to draw men and women and boys and girls to him. Lots of people have been pushed away with the word. And that was somebody who drew it out in their own strength and started using it instead of allowing the Spirit of God to use it. And while it is an offensive weapon, it is intended to be used most powerfully on you and me. It's intended to be the weapon that divides, remember? And the word is a sharp two-edged sword dividing soul and spirit, bone and marrow. And it is a, listen to this, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. It brings truth. It'll tell you what God wants for you and who you're to be. And so remember that. And then finally, praying at all times in the spirit. Worship team, come on back, please. Praying at all times in the Spirit. It's been a long time since I had to wipe my head. I've been, you know, whew, it's the jacket. <clears throat> Praying at all times in the Spirit. What's that mean? Lord, I need help. That's good. That's a good prayer. In the Spirit, though. What does that mean? It's this connection to the Father. It's not just the, and for some of you, listen, I, I'm not picking on any religious experience, but there is a thing that, that Pentecostals, and I'm going to say, at least in what we believe, have figured out. That prayer isn't just supposed to be a recitation of needs. 
But there is a living, active sense of God in every believer, if they'll allow it to. The Holy Spirit wants to direct your prayer. He wants to speak. He wants to show you what to pray and how to pray. He wants to connect you with your Father. And in that, it's more than just the recitation of, what, oh, Lord, help our nation. Help Listen, all of that is good. I want as much of that as we can get. But what you need in this standing in an unshakable foundation and what this thing is as it relates to the, to the armor of God is that when we begin to pray by the Spirit, there's a connection. Spirit of God begins to speak and you begin to listen. You begin to praise and worship and he begins to direct and suddenly your spirit begins to grow and faith begins to grow and the word is now no longer just floating around in your head. He begins to apply it to your circumstances and the promises of God go from just being words on a page. You've planted them in your mind and he begins to take them into your hearts and you begin to stand up where you were laying, hurting, just groaning in the anxiety and the fear and the loneliness or the rejection or the worry or the death that has surrounded you. I love Psalm chapter 18 where David writes about the cords of death entangled me. Some of you have felt that. And the word of God has begun to make it, it begins to be alive because you connected through prayer in the spirit with your father. And all of a sudden, you get up and you stand. Father, this morning, Prayer team members, would you join me up front quickly, please? Lord, this morning, stir your people.